Hello, and welcome to Mount Vigil. I'm Anthony. And I am Blaine. I almost scripted out an introduction to this episode where I was like, Hello, and welcome to Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross, and I'm sitting here with the newly published author, Blaine Eldridge, uh, son of the best-selling author, John Eldridge. And he's Blaine Eldridge. Wait, I'm sorry. Blaine Eldridge is related to John Eldridge? (laughs) What the? Oh, my gosh, that light just came on for me. (laughs) His book is taking the world by storm. Yeah. Anyways. All of that is true, except for everything except the son of Sean Eldredge. (laughs) You know what my book is taking by storm is uh, the more committed members of our church's leadership team who say yes enthusiastically to everything, which tends to be (laughs) the women who hold down the fort in prayer and many other ways. Isn't that how life goes? They're all reading it right now, pretty much with... Some exceptions. and I will defend the men. I walked into Tim's house two days ago, and he was reading your book. Okay. The more you know. <laughs> okay, so we well, are here. Thank you, Tim. By the way, board member, good friend. <laughs> yeah, he is on the board of Mount Vigil. Shouldn't have thrown the men under the bus. Which is a nonprofit. Wink, wink. Okay, <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, so we are here to talk about a book that Blaine has written. This book is I'm not prone to... Okay, so when, when, when friends of mine do creative projects and they share them, I, I clench and I, I wince and I'm just like, dear God, let it be good because I'm not a good liar. I don't want to say something like, you made a book or that was interesting or whatever. Um, and so I'm just a very honest person in, in this regard. I can sincerely say, this is one of my all-time favorite books. Oh, thank you. This book just slayed me in, in the best way. So for you, Mount Vigil audience, I think, I think you're going to love this book. Hopefully you enjoy these conversations. The book comes out in November and you want to pre-order it. You want to get this book because if you've been journeying with us through the Story of God series, man, you, you get extra points, extra joy in reading this book because it's going to be so much more rich and amazing for you. Though it stands on its own, even if you haven't listened to our podcast. You're insiders. You and I were talking beforehand just about how much. The book is called The Paradise King, The Tragic History and Spectacular Future of Everything According to Jesus of Nazareth. And it's a sweep of the story of God. And you said something that I've felt as I was writing it, which is, if someone has followed along in Mount Vigil, they are going to see what I'm doing in every chapter, a lot of which I don't explain. It just has to ride in the uh, kind of background of the narrative. But you'll notice, and I think you'll really dig it, if you've borne with us for so long, this book, um, well, really it's directed at you because you are our inner ring, and it's for you. Hmm. I'll say now, I'm just now deciding this, to make it easy for you to find the book and pre-order it, I'm going to make a redirect on our website. Uh, I almost said my a different business's website, uh, mountvigil.org slash book. And if you go to mount, M-O-U-N-T, vigil.org slash book, it'll redirect you to the Amazon page. Is that? Yep. Okay. The Amazon page for this book. Okay. So let's get into it. Blaine, I have seen you over the last, I'm not sure how long, years? 
work, years. work on this book. I've seen you pour blood, sweat, and tears into this project, and it's so wrapped up in your personal story of transformation, repentance, redemption, all the things. Just give us a sense of how this book came to be. If you want to start off with a synopsis, go for it. What is The Paradise King about? It really is a reintroduction to reality as read through Jesus. And the background story goes like this. It's about four years ago, maybe more, and I was reading Daniel. I tell this story in the book, but you can get that behind the scenes here, because I'd been reading about the Neo-Babylonian Empire and Nebuchadnezzar II and that whole uh, cadre of mad emperors. And I start reading Daniel 2, and all of a sudden, here's Nebuchadnezzar in the middle of this unbelievable story. So what actually ends up happening is, over the course of several weeks, whenever I would see my brothers, when I would ever, whenever I would see a few people at work, I would tell them some part of the Daniel story because something was happening. I was just gripped by how good the story was. That one is actually a pretty easy on-ramp because it's so comparatively new and it's so narrative. And the dialogue is unbelievable. The story is, you know, in the second year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. He was troubled at night and his sleep left him. Uh, so you get this unbelievable scene setting and then you get these back and forths between the various court magicians. And So it's, it's, an, it's a beautiful story. And I did not at that time know what was happening besides the fact that the lights were starting to come on. First, it was just what a good story it was. And as I worked over time to put words to what was happening, I added the layers. It's a good story and a coherent story and a true story. And almost no one here in the West experiences it that way. Because at that same time, I started digging around. That was when I was re really beginning to read people like Dr. Michael Heiser and Brian Doak, and uh, Alan Segal, and the filter that came on was, hey, the Bible actually has an extremely sophisticated picture of the supernatural world that is not only internally consistent, but it goes through an unbelievable development over the canon of Scripture. But most of us, if you're me, I, so I'll speak for myself, say, I did not know what that was. So I start reading, and I start to think, man, I, I would like to communicate just the raw power of the biblical story. Emily hated this season of our life because I would act it out. <laughs> and this is what I would do. She would go to put our daughter down at that time. I was living by you. I would play the Bible on audio, and I would clean the kitchen, and then she'd come out, and I would basically riff 
on what had happened. Or I, so I acted out the death of King David for mm. Emily like eleven times, and <laughs> she she was profoundly disturbed. <laughs> and by that, but I, what was happening, I think is actually best explained by two theologians who I found to be relevant later. And one is von Balthasar, for obvious reasons, and the other is the old cardinal, John Henry Newman. Mm. And what von Balthasar realized, so he is a 20th century German Catholic theologian. I would say he's primarily a philosopher and theologian. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, both. There should be no distinction, though. Uh, and as an aside, his friendship with Bart uh, is maybe one of my fa- one of the high points for me in 20th century theology because mm. they were uh, a biographer wrote they both understood that divisions in the church were a matter of sin mm. and in need of repentance and reconciliation, and so. They both viewed the other as basically the only mind that could adequately critique their work. So when Bart was revising his hypothesis as his career went on, he would regularly say, the only person I read who noticed the error, the error in the previous work was von Balthasar. <laughs> and, awesome. But what Balthasar realized is that in the Greek formulation of the true, the good, and the beautiful... Since the end of the Middle Ages, Christians in the West had got the order wrong. They'd become very Aristotelian, and they had tried to start with the true to introduce people to the living God, which, for the record, plenty of people do experience God that way. So think of Labrie uh, and what God did through that movement in the 19, gosh, 40s and 50s. But Balthazar went, beauty. We have to start with beauty. Mm. And this is what he says. Beauty is the last thing which the thinking intellect dares to approach, since only it dances as an uncontained splendor around the double constellation of the true and the good as their, and their inseparable relation to one another. Beauty is the disinterested one without which the ancient world refused to understand itself. A word which both imperceptibly and yet unmistakably has bid farewell to our new world. And then he goes on to say, We no longer dare to believe in beauty, and we make of it a mere appearance in order the more easily to dispose of it. Our situation today shows that beauty demands for itself at least as much courage and decision as do truth and goodness, and she will not allow herself to be separated and banned from her two sisters without taking them along with herself in an act of mysterious vengeance. Mm. Isn't that unbelievably good? That is good? incredible, and it totally checks out. Like The time that we're in is marked by such ugliness and... Uh, I think beauty being an invitation back into the heart of God, back into being wooed by God, it's, it's wild. It's incredible. It's also why I think poetry might be the most important form of literature. Wow. I love your commitment to poetry, man. I want to take that <laughs> rabbit trail. But I got to give you this other idea because the two together will help 
explain what happened to me and then what I wanted to do. So 18th century, there's a famous English convert to Catholicism, John Henry Newman. Brilliant man. And he ends up writing uh, what is just a classic 18th century piece of literature. It's called Essay in Aid of a Grammar of Ascent. You get it. He, what he was trying to do was put concrete language to the approach of God to help people into a direct encounter with the living God. And because this was the 1700s and uh, the kind of fire of the Enlightenment had not died down, people were doing things like this uh, and giving them titles like that. And what he did is he identified a sense that he thought humans have that he calls the illative sense, illative. And he said, it's the natural capacity of all people to sense when they're in the presence of something remarkable, inspiring, and ennobling. Uh, There's a scholar named Andrew Greenwell, and here's his quote. He says, the illative sense is what allows us to take our concrete human experiences whether they be of nature's beauty, of the sense of the contingency of life, of the peaceful joy elicited by the shallow breathing of your child, of the honor given to a soldier who sacrificed his life for his fellows, he goes on, and come to the conclusion that there must be a transcendent reality behind it all. Mm. He whom we call or know is God. So the illitives, you have beauty which comes before the good and the true as a pathway into reality. And then the illative sense, which is the sense of being overshadowed by the holy or the presence of God in things, which poetry, music, in fact, all great art is able to provoke some sense of this illative sense, the presence of what the old philosophers called the numinous, Mm -hmm. uh, of God present in his creation. I was feeling those things while reading the Bible, um, (laughs) which actually should be something that happens to a person when they read the Bible, but it often doesn't for all kinds of reasons. So I thought, wow, uh, I think that the Holy Spirit is doing something in me, which is just confronting me with the beauty of the story of God and then provoking me by the sense of the presence of God in the story. I wonder if I can share this. So I started writing primarily Old Testament stories because I like the ancient world more than later history, usually. And I thought, you know what would be a cool book is like a book of stories and I'll tell the, you know, the war of the chieftains and I'll tell, you know, the night raid of the men of Jabesh Gilead. It's like a three-sentence story that deserves to be made into a little novella because it's so cool. Um, Imagine if you are living in the ancient world, the worst thing that can happen to you on the battlefield is to lose the body of the king. In fact, one of the reasons that all of the Spartans die at Thermopylae is because Leonidas gets killed in the middle of that action and they refuse to surrender the body of the king to the Persians Mm. and in attempting to recover it, They get it. One of the reasons that Sennacherib never personally went to battle. I mean, in the story of Sennacherib, there's this character called the Rabshakeh, uh, which basically means supreme commander. 
Who's this guy? Why is he in the story? He's there because Sennacherib never personally went into battle because his father's body was lost in the wars. And it traumatized him so deeply that he stayed at home, which is not a good idea if you're trying to consolidate power as an ancient emperor. So Saul's body, you know, Saul and Jonathan, they, Mount Gilboa, they get killed and their bodies are displayed on a Philistine wall. And then the guys from a tiny, no-joke farm town, uh, you, you know, we're probably talking somewhere well under 50 military age men, decide that this is an insult to the nation and it's unacceptable. So they launch a night raid to go get the bodies and they succeed and it's awesome. Anyway. I wanted to tell stories like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And it works. I, what that feels like, what it feels like being awakened to this illative sense, uh, gaining a grammar of ascent, what it feels like is this warmth in your heart. It sounds cheesy, but that's what I felt. This warmth in my heart, this ache, this uh, almost like physical thirst in my mouth, tears coming to my eyes numerous times at at moments that weren't particularly sad. But uh, it reminds me of Lewis's philosophy of joy um, being this thing that points to the transcendent. Um, By the way, I I just want to not missed the fact that you're you're rooting your methodology in this pretty old, pretty heady debate that mostly comes out of the Catholic Church with with Christians of all sorts wrestling with the work of Thomas Aquinas on questions about grace and nature and whether we have anything in us that can relate to God or whether it's just manufactured ex nihilo and, and we actually are totally depraved. And I love the picture, I don't think we are, um, not a tulip guy, and I love this picture that there are hooks in us, that there are uh, faculties of of uh, relating to the divine. Uh, in your book, your book enters into that that debate not in some didactic way, but through beautiful narrative and uh, in these poetic choruses and so on. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's doing that in my own heart. I found myself yearning, like like. Uh, I found myself feeling like I was with Israel, yearning for the Messiah. Found my, I found myself yearning for Jesus. Um, just wanted to go back and reread the Bible like tomorrow, the whole, especially the whole Old Testament. Um, it's bearing that fruit. I, w- I want to go back a bit and just do some more framing of what this book is, because we haven't said maybe the most basic thing, which is like what actually happens in this book. And you tell the story of God through the story of six different kings. So tell us about that structure, the kings that you chose. I also want to know, you know, who the seventh would have been if you had more room and time. Oh, I pulled out multiple chapters. Yeah, I'm sure you uh, did. Yeah. I'm still not sure what I'm going to do with them because I pulled out my favorite. This book is going to have a second and edition with like your, your star maps and all the things. So. I know, the star maps aren't in there. Yeah. The story that I had to pull... Uh, started with, our story begins with a ship gliding in under the light of the moon. It was late, and the assembly at the yard had waited all day to meet it. Then you go on to this thing that happened during the divided monarchy period in Israel that also gave me an opportunity to talk about something most people don't want to talk about, which is whether or not the Phoenicians made it around the Horn of Africa, (laughs) which I think they did. (laughs) And 
Easy, careful. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but thank you. One of the most important things to realize is that the Bible tells one story, and that while it has multiple themes that we've traced in our Story of God series, those, and they're layered, there is a kind of hierarchy, meaning what are the themes to which the other themes point and or support or add nuance to? And I originally wanted to write a book about being Jesus as the anointed one. So I thought, since pretty much, pretty much only prophets and priests and kings were anointed in the ancient world, I'm going to tell a story about prophets and priests and kings to help you understand what it is that Jesus is doing. In the course of writing that, I thought, you know, the big one, like, that brutal practice of writing where you regularly are sort of pinned to the wall and you have to decide what one thing do I want to say. And what I want to say is that the long expected reign of God has come in Christ, the anointed one, and that it's the fact he is the king that makes this new reality accessible. Uh, So by looking at the story of God as the story of the need for the righteous king uh, to make it on earth as it is in heaven, I realized we could tell this story by picking the major beats. And I'll tell you, the challenge is after you hit the big three, there's a kind of big problem and, you know, a small argument for four of um, who do you, who else do you do? And so the big three moments, which if you have listened to Mount Vigil, this is not a surprise to you, are these three covenant developments called the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, given at Sinai, and the Davidic covenant. And our boy, John Peterson, I have so many Petersons in my mind right now uh, because of Andrew Peterson. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Sorry about that note. Um, <laughs> um, he called he he described the story of God as being like this mobile on which uh, everything was hanging, but the kind of three limbs on which the other elements in the story of God hang are those three covenant moments. So I thought I have to tell the story of Abram who I love anyway, and because he touches on a number of fascinating things that happened a long time ago, uh, that's easy. I have to write about Moses, which was extremely challenging. I have to write about David, which I also, which I flat out did not want to do. And then after that, you know, the last chapter that I finally added in was I tried to tell a story that made sense without writing about Genesis 1 and 2. And I did that because I knew that it would be really hard. (laughs) And I was like, maybe I can just allude to it uh, without deeply diving into what role does human in Genesis 1 and 2 play in the story of God. Turns out he's kind of indispensable. And so I thought, all right, so now we have Adam. Now we have Abram. Now we have Moses. Now we have David. 
who am I going to round this out with? And it was a straight up tie between Hezekiah and Josiah. The thing that tipped the scales is that if you ask the Bible, which of these characters is more unique? It tells you because it says there was no king like Josiah, not before, not after. So I thought, I better explore Josiah. In Kings, he only gets a couple chapters. His story is a tiny bit longer in Chronicles, but it's, you know, by all accounts, it's as slim a portrait as Adam in the garden. And yet the rest of the Bible views it as this inflection point that happens to come up in the work of Jesus. So he had to be in there. But if I were to add more, I would actually throw Hezekiah first because Hezekiah as the war archon of this league of rebellious states that fight off Assyrian rule at a key moment is just a very cool character. And the war preparations of Hezekiah are decades long and fascinating, you know, Anytime you have a story where you send secret envoys to a rebellious Babylonian prince in exile named Merodach Baladan, you know you're in for a good story. <laughs> That's Hezekiah's story. And it kind of backfires, but I didn't write about it. The other one is I would put Elijah the prophet in there. Mm, yeah. Because you need to answer the question of, but what happens? Uh, the role of the prophet is basically coextensive. Every scholar that I've read points out with the institution of the monarchy in Israel. So prophecy is a human capacity that exists before and after, but that role is for the kingdom. But it come, it reaches its high point in the vacuum of what happens when there is no king. And how does the prophetic role fulfill the purposes of God in a situation like that? That's good. If I if I had to vote for my like the king I want you to write about with his own chapter, it would have been Noah. But oh yeah, actually, oh. actually, you covered him and this whole uh, this this whole step this whole set of stories between Adam and Abram so well in this interlude. It's my so far it's my favorite chorus, which the book is structured with these choruses between each major chapter. Anyways. Like the the amount that you packed into that chorus so beautifully without it feeling like you're just trying to like check the boxes to, you know, string this, these stories together was so masterful. Uh, I have to thank you for that chorus too, because I called you from a gas station uh, in the middle of revising that chorus to ask you to weigh in on what you thought was going on with Cain and Abel. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, because... You know, there's nothing like sitting down to tell a story to show you that you don't know what's happening in the story. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, I'm going to add some emotional texture to um, God not looking with favor on Cain's offering. Yeah. What? You covered that, that part so perfectly. In so few words, you, you, if people are paying attention, especially to the way that we typically interpret that story, which is mostly wrong, and then, uh, and then the way I would argue it should be interpreted, you, you nodded to it so well in this just poetic flow. I also alluded to what I thought the Mark of Cain was, but you're going to have to get the book to see if you can pick up what I think it is. <laughs> I have to go back now. I'm trying to remember. Uh, 
I remember, I remember that moment, but I can't remember what you said. That is really interesting. Um, and you actually have to link to a pretty technical reading of the law in the Torah. But I think there's a beautiful argument to be made that the city, which prefigures the cities of refuge, mm. uh, they link directly to each other, um, is the mark. And maybe at another time, I'll make that case um, in long form. Ah, that's compelling. That's compelling. And uh, the recent Bible Project series on cities, uh, they, they don't say that, but what you're talking about, it makes perfect sense. The theology of the city is very important. And, and it, it, can, role, it connects to the, the, the stolen fruit in the garden, people trying to get for themselves what God wants to provide. Yeah, Shalom. Directly related to murder, blood in the ground, and uh, the need to put some limitations on distributive violence, the archetypical scene of which is Genesis 4. That's, so. that's big. Even if the mark of Cain was, I don't know, something on his forehead, regardless, we, don't, we, we definitely don't know what that is. We definitely do know that the city is the mark of Cain for us, mythologically speaking. So it's, it's a given. Uh, I like wow. that. For us, mythologically speaking, is uh, going to be a Mount Vigil <laughs> bumper sticker <laughs> when we make those. So here's a question for you. People picking up this book, I, I walk into a Christian bookstore. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I pick up this book somewhere, and it's, I know it's a Christian book. And is it in the fiction section? Is it in the nonfiction section? Is it in the historical fiction section? Um, people might not be expecting so much narrative. I, which is is the best part about this book. It's so moving. It's hard to over-exaggerate. So my question for you is, is this another Gospel of Thomas? Is this uh, the message? Is this the Passion Translation? Is this the Jesus Storybook Bible? Um, what are you doing? How dare you? Well, it's not <laughs> the Gospel of Thomas. Take the... I put those in a, in a list together on purpose. Yeah, that was uh, a great list. How uh, dare you take the Bible and put it in your own words? What are you doing with this? Thank you uh, for asking that question because I love to talk about this. Unfortunately, again, back to von Balthasar, our styles, our modern styles of exploring the scriptures are very thin. And it's sort of C.S. Lewis's Men Without Chests exegesis edition. There's a beautiful book about Bishop Barron's style of evangelism that I stumbled across in our local library one day. What? Uh, and I know. I was so shocked. That was why I got it, actually. And what he was saying, the book is called To Set a Fire on the Earth. And... It's very good. You should go read it. But he observes the same thing where he says, actually, for millennia, Christians have made art that invites you to come live inside the story of God. So he lists, he goes, cathedrals are a big one. But then he's, all, Bishop Barron is very big on film. I mean, he kind of got his start, not really, but in part reviewing movies and he knows his novels and his fiction and says, an invitation to come make your home in the story of God inside art is a great way to, ex to encounter Jesus and then kind of learn the mechanics of life in the kingdom, then learn the rules of thriving. 
So there are several old genres. As I was writing, I had a very hard time saying what I was doing. Because when I said I do basically creative retellings of famous stories and then I add commentary, um, usually not my own, I just talk about the commentary that's out there on these stories. There was a bit of a huh? Like, and a lot of people didn't think they were going to like it because there are exceptions, but it's an easy thing to do poorly. And uh, I can tell you that it's by doing it poorly a lot that hopefully it's adequate now. I mean, a lot got cut in the course of how do I write something that is an invitation to consider the multiple lenses of scripture? What I have to say is that this is a thing, man. Uh, get into your church history, and there's a genre called hagiography that originates around the 500s. But actually, I mean, Gregory the Great is the guy who goes, we need stories of saints. And we've actually had a beautiful history right now. And by the way, if you're not a history person, it doesn't, you didn't realize what happened when I said it was Gregory the Great in the 500s, why it had to happen then. And the reason is the Western Roman Empire is going away. So civilization is collapsing. You're losing the living connection with the past preserved in culture and tradition. And he says, we got to write some of these stories down. And we have to write the lives of saints. We have to write the way that they taught about and interfaced with the canon of scripture, or we're going to lose our history. I love hagiography. Uh, even though it's, a lot of it is quite, uh, it's written in genres that are very old, so it kind of takes some time to figure out what's going on. But I thought, man, if you're going to communicate the, the emotional reality of an unfamiliar genre, you're going to need help. I certainly do. I mean, I started writing these to try to put words to what I was seeing and also to explore what I didn't get. So you open this book and you get me talking about, narrating my engagement with the Bible and with Jesus over time. And then I try to be upfront as often as possible that I'm not a historian and I'm not a biblical scholar. I have great respect for both of those groups. Mm. And so we could, I can't sit you down and parse Greek verbs, guys. And the, the hard work that is done by the real leaders in those disciplines, I'm just so grateful for. You know, we just spent ages extolling the virtues of Michael Gorman and Scott McKnight. Those are some real biblical scholars and what they're able to do is so helpful. But I wanted to say, as an amateur who thinks these things is interesting and likes to read historians and scholars, let me just kind of come in and point things out, but then I'll try to communicate the reality of the story by telling it in a, I hope, theologically and historically accurate way, and then I'll kind of explain the decisions I made. Maybe we should do an example. This feels like a good moment, too. Perfect. Give us a dramatic greeting with your best character voices. Okay, well, let's see. I think I'm going to go... So, you open the book, and it's like, oh, here's a chapter on Abram, and you get a story, and then uh, you get to sit with your weird history friend as he tells you why you should care about Sumer and Akkad, which you should. And <laughs> then when, you know, I wrap up exposition, which 
Thank you, Jesus, for editors, because all of mine kept saying, make it thinner, make it thinner. Like, mm. uh, leave the questions, let the stories provoke the questions, let people go find the answers. And so my sort of, uh, I wanted to explain every single decision that I made in every story. Not everyone is interested in that. <laughs> um, so then you get uh, a line break, and then I'll just say from Genesis 14. So you know you can go read Genesis 14, the War of the Chieftains interpolation, and then it goes like this. They brought in the survivor at night. He was weary and manic with a bad wound in his arm already festering. The sentries observed it and guessed he would die. Not that they hadn't almost killed him themselves. It was wartime. Everyone was on edge. Just in time, one of Abram's men had recognized the sodomite accent, and they'd made a litter and carried him past Mamre and Eskel and Anner, Abram's allies, to Abram himself. At last, by the oaks of Mamre, the canny patriarch beheld the refugee. Where is he from? <laughs> Abram asked. From demons, his men replied. From Sodom, we think. The fighting came into the valley. Abram considered. It was only a matter of time, he said. Everyone knew about the invasion. Elam, Babylon, and the Hittites had sacked the Rephaim. They had crushed certain Amorites. Then they'd come into the Jordan plain. It was better to run from a coalition like that. The cities of the plain had not. Abram spoke softly. Have some water, he said, and tell me your news. The man drank and sputtered. His hand shook violently. They've taken the people, he said. I know, Abram replied. He was direct. He was not unkind. He asked, your family? The man shook his head. No, he said. Yours. He found Abram's eyes. They took Lot. At once, the atmosphere changed. Abram was still. Like a huge, humped shadow, he seemed. The muscles were hard in his face, and his eyes grew dark and dangerous. Slowly, he stood. Thank you for telling me, he said in a deadly voice. Eliasar. Have my physicians attend to this man. He spun and left the tent. Outside, his leading men stood in the dark. Gather the Gaborim, Abram clipped before they could speak, and tell Mamre I need him. When are we leaving? Someone asked. Now! Abram roared and went off in wrath to gather his own battle gear. <laughs> yes. Something I love about this book is how much of your heart is in it. This book, the word heart kept coming up, and I, just, I realized how much heart is in this book. So much to say that a lot of the way that we approach theology and biblical exegesis is thin. Uh, you, on the cover, Dan Allender's quote, his, uh, his blurb, I forget what the actual... Endorsement. His endorsement, <laughs> yes. His endorsement talks about uh, generosity of spirit, I think it is. And it's it's there. You're, you've poured so much of your heart into this book, and knowing you, some of your story, uh, like like you as the boy being enthralled by, you know the 
the the stories of the adventurers of of men who were hunting the west things like that uh like just the 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 narrative the compelling narrative of like the adventure and the intrigue and the tragedy all the all the emotions that we just for for many reasons both because of our own failings and because of the the form of the scriptures we often miss uh, yeah, thank you for putting yourself and your your heart into this book. Dude, thank you. Yeah. yeah, I think what comes up for me is I just love these people. And I remember, I'm a total Daily Audio Bible fan. So if you don't know Brian Harden's Daily Audio Bible and you don't have one already, it's a great podcast. But I had a conversation with Brian years ago now about what it was like, because he just laps year after year. And he was like, well, actually, it's so joyful because it feels like seeing old friends. When you're rolling through the story and all of a sudden, you know, Hannah and Penina enter the story and there's this deep affection. I feel so grateful for the ancestors that we have in the faith. Like, it's one thing to realize that we've been grafted into the story of Israel. It's another thing to realize that we've been grafted into the story of Israel mm. and that we have, as our fathers and mothers, as our ancestors in the faith, we have Abram, we have Hezekiah, we have Huldah. And so the joy of writing these stories, um, just kind of smiling to myself at my desk over how much I love Elijah how much I, I mean, his relationship with Elisha is so beautiful because they're so different. And Elijah's this crazy person from the desert. Even his language, as far as I can follow the scholars who write about the way that he talks, is farm boy, like down home language. And then you have Elisha, who is the nearest thing, if you're in Israel at this time, to an aristocrat who's just. I mean, he's low man on the totem pole for sure, but he's landed. Uh, his family is quite wealthy. And when these men roll into the story and you just get to watch them interacting to each other and that when Elijah gets taken up into the chariot, Elijah calls after him, dad, um, it just hits, doesn't mm. it? Or you go, man. These, these is a beautiful reality that we're invited to live in. So I can't say enough what a privilege it was to have time to write these stories. That's good. I want to ask an in-between question before we get to some of the bigger framing questions. Tell me about the book cover. It's gorgeous. The design is so lovely. The snake is obvious. Tell me about the meaning of this phoenix-like bird. Yes, and I can all but guarantee you uh, did you notice what the snake is looking at? The snake is looking at... It is oh, so subtle. It's so subtle. Yeah, you can. <laughs> uh, um, I, need to like, I need to hold the book cover in the light to actually see the snake is looking I was at actually, a skull. He's looking at a skull. Yes. Um, so... Who is this Phoenix Credit character? where credit is due. I... Worked with a brilliant illustrator who has done a lot of sacred imagery. Um, his name's Chris. 
I have never asked him how to pronounce his last name. Chris, you're so great. Chris Cowell is how I said it. Maybe Chris Cole. And what I wanted to do, but market testing people freaked out. Uh, I wanted to put a seraphim on the cover. (laughs) Um, And (laughs) because I thought, you know, seraphim are the throne guardians of God. They guard the thrones of gods and kings and are a seal on Eden. That's what this book is about. So it would be perfect. Um, But sometimes ultra nerds have to listen to less ultra nerds about how something will come off. I think you should let loose in the second edition. Put the Seraph on the cover of the second edition, the expanded edition. Yeah. There's going to be a let loose edition eventually. Yeah. uh, Lord willing. Because there's a lot of things that just... um, Maybe I just won't go there. <laughs> 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 You're our Matt Vigil friends, so we could go. You guys are awesome and uh, can follow these wandering conversations. If you're um, still here, you get it. If you're still here, you get it. So I like on. I remade the Turin Papyrus, which is maybe the oldest geological map for mining in Egypt. Uh, it's on the. It's about the Wadi Hamadi, um, which is one of the dry valleys. That is actually, if I had to like really guess. Where which wadi did they go down uh, when the Exodus, which I think is a historical event that happens the way that it's portrayed in the Book of Exodus, and I I love talking about why I think that is in the way that archaeology mm. archaeology happens, yeah, um, and the way that human migrations work and like calories per camel, it's all very cool. <laughs> I call um, my backyard the Wadi Hamadi. Yeah, <laughs> that's. I really want to make like a body joke right now. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, oh, the cover. So I was like, let's make a seraphim. And we we came up with a version of it and we showed it around and people went, ah! <laughs> <laughs> it must have been accurate then. I was like, okay, well, what if we pull the face? Like, because, um, you know, I found older versions of seraphim that were just wings um, in a really like simple and beautiful way portrayed. Mm. You can find some of these at the oldest tattoo shop in the world for pilgrims. It's very hard not after seeing that just to kind of steal some of those designs. But it didn't work. And so I thought, all right, here's my other idea is we're going to go uh, kind of Eden-esque. And Chris came back in one of the first uh, rough draft illustrations. and. He had thrown a skull into the bottom because he knew how it worked. Mm. And I was like, okay, I'm really digging this, uh, but it needs movement and there needs to be a reason. Uh, Well, our boy happened to be familiar with iconography. So Mm -hmm. um, probably the coolest thing we could have put on there would have been a unicorn, um, (laughs) except for the fact that unicorn is a monster. (laughs) Uh, well, a good monster, but go uh, yeah, but or a peacock, like mm-hmm. the incorruptibility of Christ's resurrected flesh. There are these reasons, and um, so drawing on medieval still lifes, and then also on uh, Christian imagery as Christian start, Christianity starts to go around the world. It, uh, it's actually a pheasant frame that has been repurposed into kind of a phoenix uh, image. Mm-hmm. And I think you know the punchline. What is a phoenix in iconography when it does come up? It's Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. So 
it's you have this snake character looking at the grave and then over which is this image of the resurrected Jesus. But I'm going to give you one more cool thing. We struggled with a typeface. Mm. Like I cannot tell you. Because to try to do something that references tradition without just imitating tradition, it's really easy to make something really bad. Um, So I could show you all the bad sketches that I did. And so we tried fonts that were inspired by the Cyrillic alphabet, you know, like from icons, looked more like Greek letters. We tried black letter to see, well, what if we made it look more epic? Uh, the, the 1611 King James Bible ended up being the linchpin because uh, one day I thought, what are the associations that I want? I'm like, I want the association to be the Bible. And so I realized that almost all Bible printings use the same header font. And it's inspired by the 1611 King James is a black letter Bible. It's very hard to read. But the headings are not black letter. Mm. They're a very early serif typeface. And... Every printing will use a slightly different version of the Bible font, but, mm-hmm. on, but on the cover of your Bible where it says the Holy Bible, it has these really subtle serifs, and it's actually a beautiful typeface that the Bible uses that's just hidden there in plain sight with a great history. So we found a more modern version that was married as closely as possible to kind of the origin story of the printing press and used... Uh, the typeface that would ordinarily say the Bible to say the paradise king as a lens into what the Bible is the story of. Lovely. Listener, if you are reeling at how much intentionality went into the book cover, the typeface, the, the cover design, that's just a hint at how much intentionality and density of of care and detail and Easter eggs that are all over this whole book. Um, we are running out of time here. I'm going to ask you a big question, an unfairly large question given the time that we have left, and you can close us out. The next conversation, we will actually get into some of the content of the, the stories. So the, the six different kings, we'll talk about them and um, certain decisions that Blaine made and so on. So last question. I see, your, I see this book as being a work of positive deconstruction, a work of deconstruction and reconstruction. Um, so you can deconstruct any number of, of materialistic, atheistic, modern, disenchanted perspectives. And it's positive, but it's reconstructive because you, you spend most of your time doing that work by telling a better story. And um, while, while you are retelling stories in your own words, there is more faithful exegesis and scholarship and just letting the scripture speak for itself in this creative retelling than there, than there is in many books that are just nonfiction Christian books trying to tell you what the author thinks. So thank you for that. So tell me more about your methodology in this regard. Tell me more about, um, in, in the intro, you say something about you want for the reader to be free from their enchantments. I think that all oh, human yeah. beings, there's no, no human being 
not under an enchantment. And it's better to be generally enchanted than it is to be under the enchantment of disenchantment, which is just one of the many BS options out there. So you are trying to uh, re-enchant our world and then draw us in, of course, to the enchantment, which is uh, Yahweh as the most high God and a spiritualized world and so on. So what's what's how, how do you do this through the the narratives that you share? Great question. By the way, when I talked about wanting a person to leave the world's many enchantments, who was I thinking of? You know, because of conversations that we've had. Um, let me think. There are uh, righteous and unrighteous enchantments. Oh, who? C.S. Lewis. Oh. Obvious. Um, so, uh, sorry, it would have been more niche. You're yeah. probably looking, but no. Um, enchantments are used for breaking enchantments as well as for making them. A great example of that. The first introduction to this conversation I ever had as a kid was in uh, The Weight of Glory. And Lewis straightforwardly says, am I trying to enchant you? Yes, I am. Ever since then, I've been fascinated by this concept. Go on. I should have known. Tell a, just to tell a great story. This book, I'll tell you the methodology. The methodology is, uh, one, it just sounds so lame, but the amount of prayer to see Jesus and the amount of pain, like to call this a rosy writing experience um, would be so inaccurate. Writing is hard. Um, Writing in my bedroom at home with my kids climbing over me was a challenge. And trying earnestly to see Jesus. I say this in the book, but I go, guys, like, seeking an encounter with God is hard. And many oppositional elements in your soul will resist. So to sit down and go, Jesus, I earnestly want to see you. Then I'm going to position myself as a good student who doesn't take things for granted uh, the German existentialist movement had a word that I just loved, Weltschmerz, which is their kind of definition of acedia. Weltschmerz is world weariness. It's just the exhaustion that hangs over late modernity. It's so hard to hold on to excitement, you know, naive enthusiasm. We call enthusiasm naive uh, and just go, listen, life is hard and... I get it. The Bible's important, but there are bills to pay. Let me tell you, I, I know that pain. And what you have to do, what I have to do regularly is ask stupid questions, try to take on a nature of powerlessness, don't assume familiarity. And so when I would sit down with a story I would use BFAM, man. I'd use the discovery method from Every Home for Christ first. And I would say, first question, what is going on? Like, who are the characters? What are the actions? What are the possible emotions and motives? And then I would start kind of going deeper. And because I think it's interesting, I'd say, how old is this story? How is it made? One of the most valuable things that you could do, and Blue Letter Bible or Bible Hub are both great at this, is so go to Bible Hub, uh, pull up the passage that you are reading, and then click on the uh, commentary menu button, and it'll pull up 
you know, Ellicott's commentary and the Benson commentary and a number of others, read through those. It's just fascinating to see what have some of the big biblical commentators said about this passage across time. Something like Charles Ellicott is a really interesting guy. And I very rarely, he's so post-Reformation, I very rarely agree with what he says. But his familiarity with the entire biblical story is unfreaking believable because he's doing it out of his head. And he's going, oh, yeah, this moment of the dais and 2 Samuel gets linked to in these three sections. And I happen to think that there is a prolepsis, a procatalepsis of this event in Moses right here. He just knows it. Um, and by saturating his mind in the world of the Bible, there's an aggregate effect over time. I think that mm, if we're honest, well, let me tell it this way, drawing again from our Catholic brothers and sisters, one of the major th initiatives out of Vatican II, which if you're not a Catholic, you don't dum, care. Dum, dum. Um, and, and there were all of these things, there were all of these things that get talked about, about Vatican II and its flavor. One of the big things was people don't know the Bible. Honestly, they don't. What are we going to do uh, to teach them all Latin? <laughs> All right, this and other ideas <laughs> are real. Like, what do we do about the fact that people don't know it? And there have been some really amazing, amazing initiatives that have come out of Vatican II trying to be like, how do we get the scriptures back into the hands of the people? Mm. And the direct, how do we get the voice of God speaking into people's lives? So when I told these stories, and I mentioned this before, there are really diabolical retellings all over the world and in history. And we're so unfamiliar with them, we don't know what they are. You know, the, the Noah movie, I'm, as a history person, I'm a big fan of the Noah movie. Um, it doesn't, I don't even know if it uses the Bible as a source. No, it uses Jewish, like, yeah, Kabbalistic mythology. It uses Kabbalistic yeah. mythology. And a lot of ancient Jewish stuff um, and the fruit, like, ultimately, I'm opposed to that project. But the composite pieces are pretty interesting. Mm. But that, that thing got rolled out. And basically, no one that I knew knew what it was, which was, oh, this is the Apocalypse of Adam, you know, 21st century edition. Mm. Uh, this is draw, And it's a little insidious because... It is drawing on traditions that are not submitted to Yahweh God to tell a story about mm -hmm. Yahweh God, but it's doing a really thorough engagement, a very thorough engagement with those stories, and and not saying things at key times. I happen to know that one of my favorite YouTube comments of all time <laughs> uh, comes from the, a scene where one of the Rocky Watcher Transformers, but, you know... The Watchers. It's the guy from the Fantastic Four. Yeah, that guy uh, is having a conversation with Noah about what happened to him. And, you know, in, and he gives the demonic propaganda version, Prometheus version. We had pity on humanity, so we came down to try mm. to help. And then someone in the comments went, dot, 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 quotes, and then had sex with human women. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> well said. Uh, I, 
yeah, I laughed so hard. I was like, thank you for knowing that. Um, the reality here, you're taking a demonic myth and putting Russell Crowe on it. So I wanted, when I told these stories, to be able to stand by the decisions I made and therefore just to steep them in really good scholarship so that at most points, and we'll see what I do next, I kind of want to write a companion and just nerd out like crazy (laughs) and say, if you want to use my book as an introduction to Christian theology, here's the next book that is like all of the stuff in the stories that just seems totally irrelevant is highly relevant um, because I want it to point to Jesus, who has a monopoly on reality. His definition of reality is exclusive, and therefore it has a given nature that you have to discover. Reality is a revelation, and then submit yourself to. So that's what I did. Reality is a revelation sounds like a great podcast. We should make that podcast. Yeah, it would be really good. Well, my friend, well done. This work is a great accomplishment. Uh, I'm not trying to stoke your ego by saying, I think it, 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 it at least approaches, if not fully, just lands squarely in the category of masterpiece. And it's your second book to have written. Um, I'm feeling emotional talking about this book just because I know how much suffering and, and personal transformation and repentance went into it. And it's a gift to me. It's uh, really... Uh, it's really awoken my heart and uh, it's doing things for me. I feel it like churning inside of my chest. So I hope everyone listening reads it. And our next, again, our next conversation will go into some of the, the specific stories. So far, I just have one, one kind of major issue I'm, I want to argue with you about. Um, the fast, <laughs> which is awesome that it's that's not awesome. That. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. And it's more of a nerdy philosophical, like, <laughs> let's just discuss this. Um, so yeah, I can't wait to get into the chapters and um, tell some of the stories. Have some more readings as well with your, with your Bane voice. Oh yeah, my, we'll bring it in. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for being so generous in this conversation. And it's amazing to finally be sitting down and talking about a book that we've had conversations about writing yeah. for the last two years. So it's good. Thank you, my friend.